friends, and we welcome you to another episode of Churches Changing Podcast. I'm Paul Nixon. And I am Beth Estock. And we're here together today, which is a, a treat. Beth, seven years ago, seven years ago, we released a book entitled Weird Church, and we went on a tour with book parties from Munich to London to Vegas and Portland, Oregon, and on and on and on. Well, a lot of folks were ready for what that book had to say, but it was it kind of stretched a few folks, especially if they were still looking to sort of resuscitate and reconstitute their churches back to the late Christendom 1990s and looking for best practices to do that. Okay. Correct. And those people kind of were put off by the book a little bit. Now, one pandemic later, a lot more people are ready and able to engage some of the ideas from Weird Church. So you and I talked earlier this week and we said, let's let's revisit some of those ideas today. Mm-hmm. Church collapse is really a big deal. In the United Methodist Church, we've had a lot of churches that have been greatly downsized and weakened due to splits and disaffiliation. But we have other churches that were just that just stayed together all through that, and they look around. It's really common to find churches that are a third of what their strength was a decade ago, which is just phenomenal because they already had slipped quite a bit a decade ago. Let's let's just have a conversation about where we are today, and we'll start with ourselves because you and I are each in a different place than we were in 2016. You certainly are up in the mountains of Northeast Oregon. How has your work and life morphed a little bit in the last seven years? Wow. So I feel like, you know, I've only gotten younger and more wise and, (laughs) well, you know, I wasn't serving a church back then. I was a pure coach and consultant. And really at that time, I feel like I had a front seat view to what was happening all over the United States as I coached people that were doing out-of-the-box expressions of church, and it seemed like my niche was people that nobody else understood. Call Beth. She gets what you're doing. We have no idea what it is, and we don't even think it's church. It's just weird. Mm -hmm. And we would like you to get back in line with what the denomination believes is church and what faith community is, And that means that people are putting money in an offering plate and you are counting butts and seats. So as I was listening in at that time to all these people that were struggling with, I I feel God is calling me to something different. I'm not being understood. And a lot of beautiful things are happening that the denomination just doesn't get and they're not counting. And They're questioning everything, and they're taking my funding away, yada, yada, yada. It's like, what's what's the overall zeitgeist happening here? What are the characteristics of these church planters that are doing things in such a different way? And so we captured that in that weird church book. And really, it was a book ahead of its time, because it was just in that, you know, when they say the bell curve of change— it was really capturing the, the one to two percenters that were really the innovators of that new thing that we didn't even have a name for yet. And so that was then. And as that church got a little bit more play, my hope was that it could help 
uh, create a conversation that would legitimize these really creative people doing out-of-the-box expressions and experimenting and innovating in, in ways that we just didn't have a name for. And I think that that book did that. But now it seems like there's another renaissance of this book of, oh, now we get it. Oh, we need to go back to it. Or, oh, we're just seeing this for the first time and this is ringing true for us. Now I am in a rural community with an average worship attendance of between 30 and 40 a Sunday in a very traditional church. And I am now one of those innovators that are taking some of these ideas forward. So that's where I am. How about you, Paul? Well, I also am finding myself in a local church working part-time in addition to all the other things I'm up to. I find that very grounding. I've always enjoyed ministry at ground level. And by the grace of God, and I found myself in a really weird church. (laughs) And people would say, that church is a little weird. And I think it's related to whatever is behind that statement that we're seeing a lot of people that are either coming back to organized religion through that church or who are really exploring it for the first time in their lives. But one of the one of the fun things about the last seven years is we now have a movement that was very marginalized called Fresh Expressions in the United Methodist Church that now has taken over the church planting mainstream. Fresh Expressions, of course, being faith communities that do not meet all of the bullet point requirements of what we have historically believed church was. In some ways, they they don't just color outside the box, they sort of punch holes in it you know, mm-hmm. and move beyond the box entirely. And we see a lot of that going on. And I don't think that represents everything that, that would be happening in terms of weird church, because my congregation that where I serve in California is not a fresh expression. It's a rather traditional congregation. We sang, we sang hymns last Sunday in, in addition to some other very eclectic kinds of music. But we are still living within the principles of, that we talked about in that book. And it's, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. When you think about the book Weird Church, one of the, the things that was exciting about that book, and you talked me into it, was applying spiral dynamics as a lens for better understanding what's going on in culture and the collapse of organized religion. And each of the seven, we had seven shifts that we said we highly recommended that people consider and make in the way they do ministry that are a part of that book that grew out of our understanding and and belief that people were moving from one place of worldview in the term of spiral dynamics into another, another place. And in short, without getting into spiral, moving from we have, we have had a traditional and kind of a modern point of view that sort of danced with one another awkwardly at times over the last couple hundred years in Methodism. And then we moved into this space of really a postmodern, point of view and experience that could make no sense of our churches, and we have been able to make very little sense of them. So as you think about the ideas in the book for making more connection with the people who actually populate the planet these days, what comes to mind for you as something that kind of stands above the fray, as something that was really important that we said? 
Well, I think one of the key shifts is the shift from that traditional, I would call it a way of delivering a message. So we called it in the book, I think, from broadcast. From broadcast control to social collaboration, I believe was our. Yes, from broadcast control to social collaboration. So this concept of, you know, back in TV time, you had a broadcaster who broadcast the news. You had three channels and you really believed what that broadcaster was saying. And you listened to the news. And so the whole concept was they were delivering truth to a wide audience. Likewise, in churches, you have a person in a pulpit delivering the truth to the people in the audience. And the whole focus during that era was getting a big enough building to get enough seats in the building so that you could broadcast the truth. And so the whole concept of journalism as a craft, learning how to get at the truth and then share the truth, is the same thing with preaching as a craft. And it's, and it's a different kind of truth, but it is a truth. And what happened? We got phones. We got phones that have encyclopedias on it and social media on it and we realize that with this, everybody can speak their own truth and tell their own story. You don't need somebody that's standing in a pulpit or in a TV news studio. You can do it yourself just by posting on Instagram, TikTok, you know, Facebook, whatever. So you have this, you know, the whole disintegration of what it is to stand and preach to a, a butts and seats. It's, wow, there's this focus on, I have a story to tell. I have my own truth. And how ministry I see is shifting in this postmodern time is creating spaces where people can share their truth, listen to other people's truth, and through that process, discern what is capital T truth. What's the gold in the stories that we can then look to and say, oh, this is divine, this is holy, this is sacred. And while we're having an experience together of the holy. You know, one of the things that we could explore, we won't have time today, would be the way that preaching is changing in a post-broadcast situation in that we are and I preached just last Sunday, as you did. And so what we're doing is a little different than what we were trained to do in that we're inviting people into a conversation. I think that the pandemic really helped pastors get uncomfortable with the traditional form of preaching because it's hard to preach to a group of people when you're online and there's just a bunch of faces online and, it, it, you know, what is the preaching moment? It's more like a conversation when you're in a pandemic. You know, here's a little idea. Let's talk about it. And I think that that has been a real gift as we try to figure out, okay, so now that we're back inside the building, how can we bring some of that deep intimacy and the gift of hearing people's stories back into that space?
as I think about this time and the one shift for me that just really seems enormous and, and critical is the move is, is for church leaders, clergy in particular, but but beyond that, moving from being corporate officers, managing the institution at any level of church, to becoming incarnational leaders. Mm. Because ultimately, we are servants of the kingdom of God, of the reign of God. We're not servants of any particular institution, which is, is a very helpful reminder to me right now as some of my friends are finding themselves, we were all were a part of one denomination, we're going through all of this, this resorting, and sometimes we find ourselves on different sides of the fence. And I look across the fence and I say, oh, that's just one of my very dear colleagues over here. And, and we still are on the same team, even as the institution is kind of going through a weird moment. But when I think about the last gasp of modernity trying to grow the, cor- the, the corporation of church, the church's business, I think about the church growth movement that was in, in the late, the last quarter of the 20th century where at the very point when most of the denominations, the, the mainline denominations had started to decline. Now everybody's declining. Even the Mormons are losing ground. But back in those days, it, it, was, it was some of the more mainline, older denominations, some of the evangelical groups grew for a while. And the church growth movement, which now, by the way, we could have a tombstone and put a, you know, a rest in peace on that one. <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny. From the time that thing started, we lost we lost ground faster than we ever did. I mean, that was that's the legacy of the church growth movement was we shrunk massively, <laughs> but it was a huge insurgency of better tactics, and so it, we we almost shifted from theology to business tactic mm-hmm. in terms of church leadership, and it may have brought us a few extra years of solvency in North Texas. But the point is, is that it did not stop the decline, nor did, did it change the, the, the trajectory of culture, nor did it make it any easier for our work in the 21st century. So, you know, moving beyond that to a place where we're really inviting people into a shared journey and that we appear in that journey as ambassadors and representatives representatives of a faith experience. And we can be witness to that in the journey. It's not just that we're witness to that when we're at the city council meeting, we can be, but that we're still witness to that even in the most primary of gatherings, that we do not any longer control the theology that gets into the Zoom Bible study. I mean, it's a it's a big world inside many, many churches. And if it's not going to be a big world inside those places, they're probably going to be places that are, that are stuck on the broadcast thing and they're going to be declining. You know, when I looked at it, at our crowd on Sunday, I said, there's, these people are all, are all over the place. And there's just no telling what stuff they listen to or watch this week, you know, in the media. All over the place. Mm-hmm. So when you think about, Paul, that going from the corporate to more that incarnational leader what does that look like for you? Well, it looks like, I think, the, I, the, where I'm seeing the alignment is around values as opposed to around doctrine. Mm-hmm. The, 
people rally around projects, initiatives, ministries that seem to tap into the to their sort of foundational values. And but but as they come around, every time that there's every time that people gather, they're just so diverse today compared compared to what they were before, even in, in places that are still rel- relatively sort of homogeneous compared to the rest of the culture. There, it's just, so to be an incarnational leader is to show up and to put aside fear, but to show up and to be open to the gift of God in, in the encounter with human beings. And to trust that the spirit will take us where we need to go and that I don't need to grab the microphone and, and give an altar call. Yeah, you know what you're you're talking about. You know, we all we often talk about orthodoxy, right belief, you know, adherence to doctrine, the Apostles' Creed, yada yada, the Nicene Creed, orthodoxy. And then we talk about orthopraxis, the praxis of love in the world. And it seems like there's there's something more here that it's almost an invitation to being fully present on holy ground. You know, it's, it's, it goes beyond orthopraxy, even what you're saying. There's a, there's a consenting to the spirit. There's a being fully immersed in the world and knowing that God is there and spirit is animating it. And we get to be witness to it, to the sacrament of the moment. And maybe, maybe to say, as Jesus told the disciples after they were sent out two by two, before you leave, say, guess what? We just had a divine encounter. Isn't that awesome? Yes. Yes. And that is, that's, that's where we are, is, is right in that space. And I really like this idea of moving from a church as a group of people who have all signed on to a long list of things and we're all agreed on all of this. Half the people weren't agreed anyway, but they just kept their mouth shut. But, um, <laughs> but moving from that to, to a place where some people in the room identify with the Christian way in certain, in certain respects. And they bring that to the conversation. And you have churches where the people that host and sponsor the gathering are the people who identify with that. But but it's a broad gathering where there's a lot of other things. You also have gatherings where it is not sponsored and it's not a part of an organizational structure. But yet there are still persons of Christian faith experience that are in the conversation, um, discovering and helping to leverage points of agreement with people that are from other ways of life and perspective. And then there's the other church where nobody in the room may even understand what's going on. And nobody in the room may even sign on to anything that would be, that would be identified as Christian. But yet when you look at what's going on in the room, it, it, you know, it, 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 and you look at what Jesus was teaching, you know, it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, you know, mm-hmm. but it's not saying, it doesn't put a big sign on the front and say, you know, ducks. It just lives into that. So th- th- those are sort of three different ways that different groups 
have identity related to what would have originally been the Christian kind of kerygma, the, the sort of the, the basic ideas that from which our our faith began, rooted in the the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So it's it's just a different it's a different season. And all the things we were trained to do in terms of the programming, they, they don't make a lot of sense in this season. You know, they just don't make a lot of sense. And, and it brings up a lot of questions and it brings up a lot of denominational anxiety as well, because, you know, number one, what do you count? What do you claim? And what's the purpose? Mm-hmm. You know, if we can't gather in a church building on Sunday morning and have what we consider, you know, we invite God to show up. <laughs> kind of funny. You know, how can you, what what control do you have over a group of people that don't know the Jesus story, but yet are living out Jesus' love in the world? That's a, that's a tremendous letting go. And we don't know what that new thing is. We don't know what the contours of that is once that, once that happens. But that's where we're going. I visited with one of my clients today who has really kind of a dual ministry. He does youth ministry, and he's also challenging homelessness in his country by putting tens of thousands of people into flats where otherwise they would be out on the street and and unable to be employed. Their children would be taken by social services. It would be a disaster. So, So we've got two different kinds of things here. And he's doing great work in youth ministry, but but I've been fascinated by this thing he's doing with homelessness. And we talked today about, you know, what is the business you're in? It's really more about hope than it is about a strategy for working with local government and so forth. And then the conversation went, what does it mean to be an evangelist for hope? Oh, I love that question. And, and, and how can you begin to take people that are jaded in the local government council and, and help them to sort of catch on to the hope that we we can all be winners and, and we don't have to leave people behind, you know, and to catch on to that. So there's a sense of where in the work that he's doing, as he's, as he's helping to live into the kingdom of God, he's a hope evangelist. Well, I just want to do a little play on that hope because there's there's the other perspective on it as well in terms of, again, institution, and for those of us within the institution to struggle, and those of us in churches, traditional churches, to struggle with the reality of the culture in which we find ourselves, and the fact that church numbers are on the decline, church buildings are being sold. We don't have a deep bench anymore in clergy. For me, Looking at the reality of the current situation and knowing that situation and addressing that situation brings me hope. You know, if there were a bishop out there that said, look at people, you know, most of our churches have 40 and under people in them. We've lost 50% of our worship attendance over the past 20 years we're going to have probably 15 churches closing this year. Here's That's the reality. So how do we support each other? How do we listen deeply for the movement of the Holy Spirit? And how do we consent to the new thing that God is doing 
in the midst of disintegration. That brings me hope. Okay. Which takes me back in my mind to the book party we had in Portland, Oregon, (laughs) where there was a guy who came to the event wearing pajama pants. And we said, well, that's kind of odd. You know, I mean, this is an evening event at a wine bar. It's kind of a, some of the people were kind of like, you know, upscale casual and there's pajama pants. It's Portland. But, you know, I'm thinking weird man, weird city at an event looking at weird church. And I didn't even think about it any further. And we, when the book talk was over, people went to the book signing table, people went to the bar and nobody was watching my computer. And the computer that I'm actually using to help do this episode was taken out the door. We saw it on security cam by the, by book, by the um, pajama pants. Guy. That it, the, the computer showed up again through a miracle oh, that, 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 a long story, but it put me into a situation where your husband helped me to buy a new computer and you sent me into the woods to a lodge for two days or three days to just decompress, put files back together and just breathe. While I was there in the, in the Pacific Northwest in a rainforest in this lodge, I started walking through a spruce forest and the park service had this information that these trees were almost 500 years old. They were all going to top. They were all going to die soon. And then about 50 years after that, they would fall as dead wood and that that's normal. And this has been going on in 500 year cycles for a long, long time. That even as the, these giant trees were falling, they would fall. There would be about 75 years of little sprouty whatever that, that grew up. And then the great trees will rise again. But it'll be a different stand. It'll be a different mm-hmm. context, be a different moment. And I said, what an analogy for this moment where we find ourselves, where the trees are falling. Yeah. And they've been around for about 500 years. This, this movement that we're in called Protestant Christianity, which really goes back to around the time of Luther. 500 years. It's, it, I mean, we were just right there. So it's an interesting parallel. And if you go back in Christian history, you could you could easily break it into kind of 500-year chunks in terms mm-hmm. of major movements that, that were related to the times and the conditions in which people found themselves. We are not in the world of Martin Luther anymore. No. Fighting the Pope and the King. You know, I mean, and that whole movement that we were a part of came out of the Enlightenment. It came out of power to the people. Bibles printed for anybody that wants to get one. I don't need intermediaries. It it it, it was a and all of the the changes in government and democracy that happened after that. We were we we have tracked with that, but our institutions wore out. Well, and I think that the the church. You know, if we're going to look at the Roman Catholic Church, you know, what happened in 325 AD when the church became a part of the Roman Empire, the church and these movements have been in a marriage all along, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the church that helped bring about democracy, and, uh, you know, the, the Industrial Revolution. I mean, we, we've been tracking with all of that. And now we're in this epic where it's all crumbling. It's all crumbling. Now, as, as we close with a, with a little glimmer of hope here, I thought we might just look out among our clients that we work with, because we work with such interesting and weird people, and they're doing such beautiful work. 
seeking to serve God faithfully in the in the conditions and the place where they find themselves. I, I, I have a client who is the minister in charge of a church that hosts eight recovery groups. And so he puts on his collar and he goes and sits in and each of those groups different times as a, as a present. And it's taken about a year for people to realize he's not there to evangelize people and get them into the other room on Sunday at 10. Mm-hmm. No bait and switch there. No, he's just, that, that's not, that's not what he's there to do. Plus he has to build trust because the place where he lives in the world still has deep, deep Catholic Protestant distrust and suspicion. And, and so he's got a priest that, that often, comes alongside him to sit with him, who's in the same place. And now, a year in, people are coming to him to to do the work they can't do in their recovery group because they want to go deeper into um, exploring their higher power. They want to to explore that in terms of ancient faith tradition and God, spirituality. So he sees that through the Spirit's movement organically, as he placed himself in a presence there, that people learn to trust him and realize he's a resource. And, and I'm not sure the story of the Catholic priest that's working alongside him sometimes. But I can imagine, he says there's a recovery church that's waiting to be born. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he's, his appointment now is, is, is moving in that direction, where he'll keep the, the, the more traditional church, but will also be working parallel with this other. But if he and the Catholic priest operate together in a space without sacrament, which are so highly controlled by the, mm-hmm. the bureaucracy, you know, in Rome. And they stick out new space that is controlled by neither the Methodist institution or the, the Roman Catholic institution. It's a big world out there. Yeah. And there's no telling what beautiful things they can do together. And just to think they can do those things in a, in a place where Catholic and Protestant identity has been the root of violence and mistrust for centuries. They can move beyond that. Wow, that that just that concept right there is so exciting. That's weird church. Yeah. We have no idea what that's going to look like. When you think about just what what comes to mind of the, some of the people you work for? Yeah, well, I just had a conversation today Good. with a woman who is serving a two-point charge in Indiana. And she had been there for five years. She had done some deep listening, and one of her churches had six to eight people left in worship. And she's like, it's now or never, people. And they're like, yep, we get it. It's now or never. So she said, nobody's going to come into this church building anymore. If we want to be a presence in this town— we have to go outside the church. So now they are, have a presence in the tap room, and their ministry is called Life, Life on Tap, I think it's called. And they have small groups there. They do takeout meals there. They have a worship there. She spends three days a week in that bar cleaning tables just talking to people and getting to know people. Next week, the church building will be put on auction. Wow. 
they have to sell the church. They only have $15,000 in the bank. They have to sell the church. They can't even put a reserve amount on. You have to bid the church in this amount because the church is taking money, sucking money away, just the maintenance of the church. That church might go for a dollar, but they are out there right in that risk of letting it all go for the sake of the movement of the Holy Spirit in their midst. In the past year, they've gone from six to eight people to 20 people. Does not surprise me based on what you just described. This work is, it's, it's full-bodied. It is full-bodied. And this pastor serving two churches is in a bar three days a week, wiping down tables and having conversations with people that come in just to listen deeply and hear how is the Spirit moving in this person's life and how can the church be a part of that? Wow. What I like about this story is that it's a, it's a symbol. It's a beautiful symbol, an emblem of what it means to be an existing church in the organized structure that's willing to go on this journey without having to just be a tree that falls and waits for something else. There are going to be some churches that rather than simply die, they're going to move together through the process of the, of the death of institutional structure, including auctioning off a building in this case, but they're hanging together as, as, as Jesus' people. And they're going to be, they're going to be delightfully surprised. They're going to, I don't know what their future is. They don't know what the future is. Correct, but they're out there and they're taking the risk. And it's going to be a lot better future than it would have been sitting in that building. I can tell you that. Goodness, goodness. There's a story. I think this is an apocryphal story that I heard. I'm, do, I'm doing a lot of work in West Texas right now. And so I heard a story that I think relates well to all of this. And the story goes like this. A mother who lived on a ranch. There's the ranch house and there's the barn about 100 yards behind it. She says to her six-year-old child, I want you to take this flashlight and to go out and to lock the barn door for the night. It's dark. So the kid goes out, holds the flashlight into the darkness, and the light just poops out long before there's a barn. Comes back in and says, Mom! The flashlight's not strong enough. I can't see the barn. I don't know what's out there. And the mother says back to the child, you know where the barn is roughly. Start walking in that direction. Mm -hmm. Use your basic sensibilities. Walk toward the barn and go as far as the light you have. But, but go. Get going. Because because the bar door needs to be locked. I love that invitation to just take the light we have. Even when we don't know where these conversations are going, we don't know that we, we don't have any clue really how the, the gumption of those folks that are auctioning off their church building, we don't know really how that's going to play out. They don't either. No. But they do have a sense 
of the barnists in this direction out there somewhere, and they do have a little bit of light that God gives them enough kind of like their daily rations, and they can go, and they can be faithful. And I, and I want to add that there, there's a spirit of adventure in that. There's a blossoming of joy in the letting go and the taking the risk. I mean, they're following their joy. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's a, there's a lot of joy involved when we move from a place of anxious survival, you know, watching the books and you know, trying to figure out when our expiration date is. Mm-hmm. To, to throwing down our stuff and, and saying to the spirit of Jesus that comes back, hey, come follow me. Yeah. And leave in the house. I'm going. Love it. So, Beth, Weird Church is still around, the book. And I think there's a whole new generation of readers probably that would find it very helpful in this weird post-pandemic whatever moment we live in, I think we're ready for Weird Church. Yeah, it might just be that flashlight. I've enjoyed this brief time of conversation with you, and I hope at the end of the year we'll get another chance to reflect on kind of what we see happening in the world. Six months from now, let me just tell you, the world will have shifted yet again because it's moving pretty fast these days. Yeah, and it's always fun just kind of talking shop with you, Paul. Friends, thank you for joining us for this brief conversation on the Church's Changing Podcast. With me today, Paul Nixon, Beth Estock, we are the hosts of Church's Changing, and usually we have others that are here that we interview, people that are doing beautiful things in, in, in a variety of ways to be faithful to the Spirit of Christ in our age. Church's Changing is a podcast ministry of the United Methodist Church. Church is Changing podcast is a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Music is by Sanjay Singh. Visit all our podcasts at podcast.umcdiscipleship.org.